You've taken your first step into a larger world. Let's go. Hello there. I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. May the 4th be with you, and welcome to Force Material, the show that's all about the secrets and source material of Star Wars. This May 4, we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Today, he's a design director at Turn 10 Studios, the Microsoft studio that makes the Forza Motorsport and Forza Horizon games. But if you're a Star Wars fan who grew up in the 90s or the early 2000s, this man designed a pretty big chunk of your childhood. He worked on more than 20 games for LucasArts, including classics like the Super Star Wars games, X-Wing and TIE Fighter. And he was the lead designer and various other titles on legendary games like Shadows of the Empire and Episode One Racer, which turns 21 this month, believe it or not. Uh, he is, of course, the one and only John Knowles. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. John, first of all, I have to ask, as someone who loves <laughs> Star Wars, but has absolutely shocking hand-eye coordination, why were all your Star Wars games so damn hard? <laughs> um, I think a lot of that, you know, difficulty in games is one of those things that you think if you go back to the 90s, you go back to how we as game developers got our start. You know, we played games in the arcades in the 80s. We cut our teeth on those. When we started thinking about designs and games, we would like, well, we'll make it like Contra, but with Star Wars. Yeah. That's how Super <laughs> Star Wars came about, by the way. So you end up replicating coin-powered games that were designed to take money from you because you die repeatedly. Mm. And, you know, we we didn't consciously think about this back then. We just thought, well, that was the natural way of things. It's the same thing with racing games. They were so brutal back mm. in the 90s because, um, and even the early 2000s, because punishment you would equate, uh, failure you would equate to success, right? Like, wow, that's so hard. This game is great. And I think we we had a similar approach with the star wars games where you know it was in a lot of games of that era they were just brutal and then and so when you became a gamer who mastered those things you you like an elite club and there's still a lot of that sort of game snobbery going on now what you failed to realize at the time was you know in the future we'd be making games that are far more approachable not necessarily easy um but approachable so that more and more people could enjoy them and i think if i could go back and revisit a lot of those games now with that in mind i, I probably would <laughs> i uh I, remember, I know exactly what you're talking about i remember playing x-wing and feeling like i was back in that old vector graphics cabinet of the the very first star wars game yeah. you know yeah. and uh, is feeling the pressure as everything was blowing up around you and things were you know cussing out a storm and yeah. digging for another quarter and you know <laughs> and the, i designed some of those missions too yeah i did a lot of the art for those games but the, some of those missions you had to read my mind and the other designers at the time to know how it was going to play out. And we, we knew that you were going to fail oh, I know. six times, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, rescue at star's end mission. I think it was the first mission in an a wing. That was all me. And I, I apologize for that. That was, there was, it was, a, it was like the Kobayashi Maru test. There's no way <laughs> to save both shuttles. And I think, Part of that inspiration came from Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, which was a game that Larry Holland had designed also for Lucasfilm Games. Um, he was he was the head designer on X-Wing. 
he, uh, you know, some of those missions in World War II, you had to choose between one B-17 that you were going to save or the other one as a fighter pilot. There was mm-hmm. no way to save them both. Mm-hmm. And he wanted you to feel the pain and, you know, in making that choice. And we're like, oh, we'll do that in Star Wars too. And <laughs> it's just mean, but it, it all, it all came from somewhere, right? It came from a, from a goal we were trying to achieve. So, yeah. Now you were you were known as the Star Wars expert at at LucasArts back in the day. I mean, where presumably you were up against some stiff competition. I'm sure there were a lot of Star Wars experts at, at LucasArts. When did you kind of fall in love with Star Wars in the first place? Well, it's funny. Most of Lucasfilm Games, which is what it was when I started in 1990, was not. There were no. There was no Star Wars team. There was no Star Wars. You know, we were sort of forbidden from working on Star Wars. That was mm-hmm. George Lucas's mantra he's like i make star wars you know you guys go make your own thing and that'll make me a lot of money so i can go make movies you know that that was kind of the the whole goal right Right. and and create art and all that stuff so there weren't a lot of in-house experts there were fans of course um and uh you know i was one of the people assigned to a small video game team that was working on the first 8-bit uh nintendo system where we i think we're doing defenders of dinatron city or something like that which was a failed media multimedia enterprise we were trying to do outside of star wars and i saw some other guys working on some star wars stuff and i you know i was eight years old when that movie came out came out around my birthday you know in 1977 mm-hmm. that was um you know it had a huge impact on my my life it jumped shot it sort of ignited my imagination as an artist and all these things at the time and it was like oh my god i can finally work on some star wars stuff it was sort of accidental um and uh, I've stayed late to show them I could do it, you know, because I really wanted to get my foot in that door. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I had a lot of knowledge um, that I ended up gaining more by doing research, which is a fun part of games, just digging in whatever books have been written, whatever extended universe stuff, the West, uh, West End Games um, books, uh, mm-hmm. role-playing game. There's a lot of material there. And, of course, none of it was really blessed. <laughs> um <laughs> And there was no sort of infrastructure set up for having, you know, things that are canon and things that are not. And there was no timeline. I mean, those came many years later as we hired, we and Lucasfilm licensing hired continuity people and timeline people and, and all that stuff. But at the time, we just made up stuff, some mm. crazy, fantastical stuff. But we tried to bring a consistent language to everything, right? And I think the Western Games books were the first times that you saw the, those stamps that were on the TIE Fighter pilots helmets and mm-hmm. and the x-wing fighter pilots helmets you know there was a sort of a consistency there we're like all right we'll make one of those symbols mean rebel and the other one mean <laughs> empire and that's just become a thing now like mm. people get that stuff tattooed and i think <laughs> it was really the games that kind of brought that language to everybody so i'm kind of proud of that that was that was kind of fun we just needed something to signify empire menu rebel <laughs> menu <laughs> <laughs> you know. Did um, did George have much to do with the direction of the games in general? Like, did you need to run stuff past him? Like, what what kind of interactions would you guys have with George Lucas? Um, not much uh, in the early days. I think as the the prequels, or as we we in the inside called it, the dark times. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was a lot more care in in making sure we're being consistent with uh, what has not yet been released on film. Um, so for a long time, we just understood that the, the films and the radio show uh, were canon. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing else was. 
the novels were sort of second in line in terms of almost canon. Mm-hmm. And the comics were out in like crazy land. Like Luke was you know, <laughs> in love with some rabbit space bunny person. <laughs> and I mean, there was a time when those comics just went off the rails. And so we didn't really look at those. Um, so it was kind of a responsibility we took on ourselves to do it with authenticity because of our, our love of Star Wars and wanting to do it right. I mean, we still did some crazy stuff, mm. but you know, like Luke fighting little red crabs on his way to the save or <laughs> two from the giant lava beast that lived in the belly of the sand crawler. I mean, that was stupid. I mean, look, it, it's, it's implied that happened off screen. You know, it's, it's fine. What really happened on the way to getting R2? So that yeah. sort of what really happened on the way became the setup for almost every game scenario we did throughout the Super Star Wars uh, series. I think Shadows of the Empire is when things got different. It was the first time we were telling, you know, like a, not the first time, but you know, we were starting to tell original stories. The, the, the Jedi Knight Dark Forces team that was happening at the same time. Hmm. Uh, Shadows was the first 3D step into 3D third person action um at the time uh you know dark forces was was very much uh first person only um and sprites right Mm. so so we were kind of on the bleeding edge of 3d stuff and sort of telling a story that wasn't really at the heart of it that that was really more into the the big multimedia thing with the novel and the comic book and all that stuff but um but yeah i mean it was a meeting of a few of us sitting around that kicked off that that whole thing and the game mm. carved out its piece and the novelist carved out his piece and the comic artist carved out that piece but uh, um yeah I, I do remember all of that it was, it was a crazy time and that all feel uh, very collaborative did you all you know come together or did you all just carve out your pieces and go off and, and do what you wanted to do yeah it's a good question i mean collaboration (laughs) it's an interesting thing yes it was definitely a collaboration um but it wasn't a collaboration of one team making one thing right so it's a lot different like you have a team that collaborates on a game lots of fun ideas lots of back and forth same thing on a movie um you know i'm sure it's same thing you know at some level a writer is collaborating with different parts of his brain to to write the thing down (laughs) that he wants to write but yeah there were the there was an idea that <clears throat> we weren't even going to do a Star Wars game at that point. I'd already made a bunch of them. I was already getting, believe it or not, kind of tired of it. It's been five or six years. Wanted to try something else. We were doing. We were going to do a western, mm-hmm. and um, we had hired a bunch of sharp guys from um, Spectrum Holobyte, which is another Bay Area company that that they had a bunch of guys who were really fluent in SGI. We knew the new Nintendo machine would be SGI. It was all top secret. Um, um, I think it was called Project Reality. Uh, you know, and I was part of the video game team. So it was assumed that I would be part of it, but all the guys on my team left to go start their own companies. Like, you know, they, the X-Wing guys split up to go do their own thing. The super star Wars team split into two different companies. And so I was like the only guy left standing (laughs) and, and the president of the company like, it basically tapped me. I was like a field promotion. It's like, well, how'd you like to lead the project? You're, you're a creative guy. (laughs) And so I, uh, I said, sure, but I can't do it alone. I'm, I'm going to need some help. So we, it was the first time ever where we had like four, three or four project leaders. We all swore that we would, you know, do it all equally. We'd make decisions equally. So our team was, was definitely a collaboration. And, you know, as we were doing this Western thing, it became apparent pretty clear that, you know, we ought to be doing a Star Wars thing. Nintendo is mm-hmm. going to have a, you know, and Lucas are going to do this big partnership thing, but it comes with some strings attached. You have mm. to have a character that is unique 
to the Nintendo for at least a year. Uh-huh. Meaning it can't be Luke, it can't be Han Solo, can't be Boba Fett, it can't be any of the characters you know and love that you're going to be playing. So that was kind of a, a box, you know, that we were uh, told we'd have to work with him, which is how Dash Rendar came to be. Um, and uh, who is like a carbon copy of Han Solo, so to speak. <laughs> um, although what's interesting is when you talk about this collaboration, you know, when we were talking about who Dash is and what he's all about, you know, it's like, well, the, the writer of the novel, Steve Perry, he was thinking more of this guy whose name I forget from the movie Willow with long flowing hair. He was very... Matt Mardigan. Kilma, uh, Matt Mardigan? No, yeah. not, not him. The other guy. Uh, the redheaded dude. And we've, I can't remember his I can't remember his character's name. So Matt Mardigan oh, is, is it, more of the brash uh, guy. Is it Eric? Um, yeah. Calvin Hurley? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Guy. Yeah. He's yeah. just very regal and very... So he was thinking he's very rich. He's very suave. He's dashing... Right. Okay. Mm. Subtle. Um, yeah. Uh, and Star Wars names often aren't subtle. So yeah, exactly. Fits. Yeah. It kind of fits. <laughs> but uh, in the Killian Plunkett, who's an artist at Dark Horse Comics, he, he and I were thinking about a different kind of character. Like what if he was the pirate Han Solo mm-hmm. wished he could be like, you know, like this dude is hardcore pirate, scary mm-hmm. space pirate. And some of his sketches were just awesome. Um, and I, uh, I, of course, was more aligned to that idea. Lucasfilm licensing was thinking more like who are the stars of the day, like Tom Cruise, Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's got to be young, got to be handsome, got to be clean cut. So it became this amalgamation of many different people's ideas of this character. And it, it ended up not really having much of an identity, honestly, mm-hmm. as a result of all that. But at the end of the day, he didn't really need one for <laughs> our purposes or Dark Horse Comics because they took the story that was my original um, idea for the game, which was, you know, what really happened on yeah. the way <laughs> for Boba Fett to deliver Han Solo to Jabba the Hutt. That couldn't have been just a straight shot, right? So that's the hero's journey that he's going to have. It's like, yeah. okay, I got Han Solo. Now I got to get him to Jabba the Hutt. But these bounty hunters have got to be a ruthless bunch and they all want a piece of that prize. So it became like a constant battle against all the bounty hunters you know and love. Dengar, IG-88, Bosch, you know, none of them like each other. Mm. Like, I don't know why at that point all the fiction that had been like written that there's some guild and they're all like, you know, have a code of honor. <laughs> like, come on. Like, <laughs> like, have you not seen a cowboy movie? Have you not seen a Western? Have you not seen any of the spaghetti Westerns? Like, there's no code. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Whoever gets the bag of money is the winner. <laughs> um, that's a great story. And I think that's, that's the one that Dark Horse Comics told. And if you've, if you've seen that comic yeah. series, mm. it's fantastic. It's like Boba Fett's bad week. <laughs> yeah. um, and in a lot of ways, Mandalorian, this amazing show that's on TV now, is really like um, another <clears> – <throat> I'm not going to say it was inspired by that. I, I don't think it was. But I think it's, it's drawing from the same source material, right? Mm. It's drawing from all that great stuff. So that was the one we wanted to tell, but of course we, we couldn't. We had to kind of do another one. So we ended up trying to fit, you know, other things there. What really happened as the as Han Solo, right before Han Solo left, did he meet Dash Rendar and Dash decided he'd, you know, volunteer to help out these poor struggling rebels in the snow battle. Because that's we wanted to get the player behind the wheel of a snow speeder or a mm-hmm. stick. And take down a walker. That was that was the vision for the opening of the game. Um, just ju- just drop you in there, like like a Raiders movie or a Bond movie. No preamble. Like within three seconds of booting it up, you're like, oh, 
what the hell? <laughs> and um, no, no learning to crawl before you walk, before mm. you run. It was just put you in the, and games do that now in a much more elegant way, I think. <laughs> You know, you, you start a Call of Duty game, you're in the, the climactic battle at the beginning, and there's not much can happen to you. I think you can take like a million shots, and it's pretty easy to aim and run. So the, it's not all the complex mechanics are at, at your disposal yet, but you're in the shit. Like, it hmm. is yeah. It is like, this is as awesome. I bought this game? This is awesome. We do the <laughs> same thing in Forza. Like, we typically put you behind the wheel of a outrageously overpowered car at the beginning of the game, but somehow it's not that hard. Yeah, <laughs> didn't have that in mind doing Shadows of the Empire. <laughs> in but but the accomplishment and pride you felt when you took that walker down is probably something you'll never forget. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Because you had to figure it out yourself. You didn't f- follow a guy who said, "Now watch me as we follow really close to the leg." Press mm-hmm. B. There was none of that. That you had to figure it out. Uh, oh, it was. It was. It was revolutionary. I mean, that was the first time that I can remember that you, you know, you put in a game and you just felt like you were in the movie, like instantly. It didn't sort of remind you at every every turn that you're playing a video game and you're sort of being given a, a walkthrough or whatever. Like it, you were just in the snow speed. You know, you were just in the Battle of Hoth. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. I mean, there's been a few transformative moments in my early career, one of which was the first time we... We had TIE fighters shooting those green bolts at the camera in, mm-hmm. a, on a, in a prototype in some house in the hills that we were working on X-Wing. Um, and it was, it was mind-blowing. And I think this, it was a similar thing the first time we were flying around the walker in a snowspeeder because you're, you were in that space that you were so many years ago when the film came out that was so inspiring and awesome. And now you're, you're able to turn left or turn right or go between its legs. Oh my God, it's just like the movie Um, in fewer, (laughs) you know, in a simplified graphical sort of way, you are, you are in that space. And so it's, it's super immersive. And I think we nailed it. Um, We should have just made the rest of the game just like that. Right like the Rogue Squadron series became. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You become a master of a particular style of gameplay. But, I, you know, we were young and, you know, a little overly ambitious and thought we'd just do, <laughs> do everything. Well, that's that was one of the things, though, that I remember about the game is like, and I know it's something the game is being criticized for, but like, as a kid, I love that, you know, you get this one game and, you know, you've got snow speeders, you've got two different types of space combat, you've got third-person shooting, you've got first-person shooting, jetpacks, swoop bike Speeder racing. bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that, that was amazing to me. I mean, why, why did you decide to do that, like, to, to have all those different types of games instead of focusing on, on one type of gameplay? Well, oddly enough, it seemed, uh, very erroneously in hindsight, but it seemed at the time to be the right idea, the safe idea, because it was something we had done already that super star wars games are have done that you know we did yeah, three true. of them in a row we banged them out right it's like dude's running now um, sideways <laughs> shooting and stuff now he's on a speeder bike and he's riding then he hops off and then you're in mode seven which is this cool pseudo you know uh, flight mode and and we'll just now we can just do all those things because it's all one world it'll just be mm-hmm. easy it no it's just like <laughs> it 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 is uh, exponentially more difficult to take on any next type of gameplay that's fundamentally different than the previous one and not necessarily 
a great player experience um, because you have to learn suddenly new things all over again. And par part of the trick there is keeping the controls as consistent as possible. We were just making up a lot of stuff on our own. And I think at the time, the only third-person action games in 3D that were even around were on PC. I think it was Alone in the Dark and maybe Tomb Raider. I don't even think Tomb Raider was on PlayStation 1 yet. I think maybe sure. it had just come out before. It was so yeah. somewhere around that time anyway, yeah. yeah. There weren't too many great examples. Uh, those were great examples, but there weren't too many great examples to figure out how to solve for shooting while walking and running and you know, a lot of fundamental stuff we just had to figure out um, while at the same time being you know, told by Nintendo, another collaborator, we, they had somebody embedded with mm. us, Nintendo of Japan, going, we do not see Dash's feet. This is very bad. <laughs> um, and we would get in very you know, polite but stressful conversations about why if we pull the camera back to see his feet all the time, aiming becomes disassociative. You're, you're, the camera is no longer looking in the direction you're shooting. There's a, there's a lot, you know, didn't matter. You must see his feet. And they were right in a lot of cases, especially when the dash walked off a cliff over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, um, if I were to make a third-person game, I would never have a character stupid enough to walk or run off a cliff. They would always <laughs> require you to commit with a jump button. Um, otherwise, they would just sort of like, you know, come to a skid on the edge or yep. maybe maybe go off and then hop right back up again and be yeah. like well that was stupid yeah <laughs> You'd why have do to, we punish people yeah make them really want to jump off the edge of that cliff there to be able to do it yeah but that was part of the suspense of playing those games is you know walking the skinny edge of the cliff on the way to the gulf spaceport and mm -hmm. oh my god timing that jump and a lot of that was those level designers that I was lucky enough to have <clears throat> on uh, Shadows came from Dark Forces, and they had built these massive, super big Vista scale levels, and they were trying to incorporate some of that, you know, some of those those things that players enjoyed, that sense of space. And, you know, Star Wars always has bottomless canyons. Mm, with yeah. Fog. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do lots of those. Watch I mean your step. The cool thing about having all those different sort of environments and stuff and different gameplay styles is like, obviously it must've been a nightmare to create, but I mean, it does recreate the feeling of a star Wars movie. Like there's no star Wars movie where they're just flying a ship for two hours and that's it. You know what I mean? Like right. it's always a whole variety of things. So I guess shadows being, you know, the movie without the movie kind of experience they were going for, like it made sense because it followed those were the different types of scenes you would see in a star Wars movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that's, the, you, you know, you, you still see that in, again, I bring up the Call of Duty games, because again, like like Star Wars games, they're trying to capture the feeling of a, of a blockbuster action film, right, or an mm. adventure. So yes, you do have vehicle gameplay. It, it's more tight, it's more focused, and it's more along the lines of the first-person shooter um, paradigm. But uh, I think that there's yes, you're right. There's an expectation. If you're going to make a James Bond game, it can't just be him running around hallways shooting dudes. Um, yeah. Although Goldeneye was pretty, awesome. it was pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you expect him to drive cars. You expect some globe trotting. You expect some, you know, uh, you expect lots of things. And I think Star Wars movies certainly um, had imprinted that in our minds as developers. And we thought, well, the players are going to expect to fly a spaceship and to to drive a speeder and, you know, to shoot stormtroopers and do all of those things. So we, we kind of dumped everything in there. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it 
if we were to remake it today, you know, uh, I would have picked one of those modes of play and, and really tried to hone it more. Right. At the at the time, like new Star Wars stories, especially you know in the books and comics, etc., was sort of almost always set after Return of the Jedi, with the occasional dip back into that kind of classic era between A New Hope and Empire. Uh, but I think it was your idea to kind of take the road less traveled and set Shadows of the Empire between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. What was it about that era that appealed to you? Yeah, well, and I think some of that was also like. Uh, I th- there weren't any hard rules about that, but there was kind of this container that belonged to George Lucas, right? Um, I mean, all of Star Wars, it belongs to him, but you know, the, the movies themselves, you know, don't, don't get too close to either end of that mm-hmm. because he might do something, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. So the Han Solo at stars or the, sorry, the Han Solo adventures by Brian Daly, which I love those books. Mm-hmm. Those were set five to 10 years before Star Wars in another part of the galaxy where the empire's not even a thing. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the corporate sector authority. So there was kind of these rules. And I think my, for me, the empire strikes back was the greatest movie. It's the greatest moment, you know, it's the greatest time of turmoil and all that stuff. It's where all the drama was happening. Um, And it's, you know, when the bounty hunters were suddenly introduced as a thing to be reckoned with. Um, And that was where that was all going to happen. So I I proposed it and it was accepted. So it was unusual to be able to just slot something in there during that owned piece of canon timeframe. Hmm. Um, and that's where licensing became more involved and in just trying to be careful that everything had continuity with, with the, you know, nothing stepped on the toes of radio show or film or comics, which are now adhering to more rules. Um, so those were, those were uh, interesting times. And yeah, it was my idea because I just felt that was the most interesting place to set it period. Um, and uh and that's and again you know again this the this the entire source of the idea was what happened on the way from boba fett <laughs> getting on solo in cloud city to delivering the job of the hut um, there's like three-year gap there right uh hmm. we don't know how long uh, i'm sure the movie timeline has an exact time that might might be something else but that's a you know that's longer than a, a quick trip across the galaxy so um, yeah that didn't that didn't go well <laughs> or han solo has been hanging around there like you know <laughs> from the day after cloud city you know uh, which would really suck but uh yeah that that became a a really good a really good um place to explore and i don't think we explored much of it and then of course the prequels came and we weren't allowed to play in that world anymore um mm. Honestly, we were told, you know, make movies about the prequels or sorry, make games tied into the prequel universe um, or there's no point in making games. So there's a weird time where you mm. couldn't play in that sandbox that we all wanted to play in. Right. Mm-hmm. The only the only downside of, you know, setting it in that era between Empire and Return of the Jedi was obviously, you know, you mentioned Dash Renda before. So, you know, because it was set in that time period, you couldn't use Han Solo. But you is it true that you had an idea for a Han Solo game around this sort of time period as well? Something based oh, on the Brian Daly I'm, novels? I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure I'm one of many people at Lucas who had... Uh, I don't think any of us officially pitched a proper game because we all saw how hard it was going to be. One, um, what does he do? Like, what's the gameplay? I mean, aside from flying, right? You want him to run around always and shoot stormtroopers. And, you know, he's not really a, a great looking action character, right? Um, there's a bunch of things that just got in the way, especially at that time before you could do like, you know, uh, 
Nathan Drake style, you know, graphics, right? I mean, you know, the, the types of things that people are familiar with today, you know, I'm sure you could make a compelling Han Solo game now. I'm still not sure what the gameplay is other than maybe him getting into and out of trouble with the occasional gunfight and flying. I, it's still like wrapping your head around, where you look at Boba Fett, you're like, oh, you know, he, you know he, he flies, he shoots flames out of his hand, he can fire <laughs> guns and he's got some cool targeting device. Problem solved. Um, there's a little bit less of that, I think, with Han Solo. So, mm. you know, Luke, he's got a lightsaber, he's got a prop, he's got something he can do, right? He's got the force, he's got magic powers, you know, all, all those things like, Han Solo is kind of a boring video game character. And I, I know that Battlefront solved that, you know, as just a, a dude, another guy you can be like a hero and a shooter, but but as a story-driven, you know, RPG action adventure where you, it's probably more interesting to not be Han Solo. It's probably more interesting to be a guy who lives a life like Han Solo. Mm. Is more yeah. interesting looking, right? Or <laughs> <laughs> has cooler... <laughs> Has cooler props. Like the Mandalorian is in a lot of ways far more interesting than Boba Fett or Jango Fett have ever or will ever be. But it's still capturing that same that same essence, right? Mm. Yeah. All all I ever wanted from those times was um, an elite game, uh, you know, an elite style game set in the Star Wars universe. And I think a Han Solo game could have mm-hmm. fitted in quite well there. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing Freelancer when that mm-hmm. came out a few years later and thinking, why can't this just be Star Wars? Or the Privateer so, well, board game. Yeah, Privateer, game. yeah. That's right. Yeah. So were, were there ever any ideas to do a game like that? Oh, think? yeah, especially yeah. With, the, with the X-Wing series. And X-Wing Alliance, I think, was, was, was going to then mm-hmm. branch off into something more like that. And then Galaxies came along, and we had it just became this 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 unholy mess of different developers working on different things. And that idea just got lost. And again, the team, the core team, the personnel within LucasArts, your job was to make prequel games, Mm. Um, which was a a really strange mandate. I I guess I understand it, but at the same time, it, it, you know, got us into a lot of trouble, you know, (laughs) but it had a one bright spot, which is racer. <laughs> at <laughs> yeah. least, at least for me. I mean, there were other cool things that came out of that, but for me, that was a chance to take to have the same team mostly who worked on Shadows, which is a pretty small team, and then focus on doing one thing and doing it really well, which was, which was kind of the big lesson that came out of um, Shadows. And so we just made it a, a game about IP link speed. Period. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And and. And didn't set out to make like a great complex racing game. We just set out to make a really cool toy, I guess is one way uh, Eric Johnston put it as the lead programmer. He's like, you know, you're a kid who's just gone to see the movie. You go out and get the game. You want to experience it. It's like a cool toy. Right. Hmm. Um, and don't overthink it. And, uh, and I think that helped keep us on, on, on track in um, banging together, you know, what was pretty fun you know, if, you know, also crude, um, kind of, you know, space racer. Yeah. Well, how, how much of like when you were working on that game, had you had a chance to see much or any of episode one? Like what were you kind of working from when you, when you made that? Yeah. So that was all super duper top secret stuff. Um, I think we were, we knew that we were, we had already spun up the rogue squadron team that factor five was going to do, um, just around the corner from us they had come from germany and they they set up a studio right around the corner from lucas actually and 
and uh, and we had worked with them on an Indiana Jones Super Nintendo game, which was basically like Super Star Wars, except with Indiana Jones. Very much like it. So mm-hmm. much so that I, I took all the animations I did for Han Solo and I made them <laughs> Indiana Jones. <laughs> Gave him an Indiana Jones twist. Saved, saved me a lot of time. But the... The uh, so they were off and running doing Rogue Squadron. The idea being just you know follow the comic book stories loosely um, using the same uh, mechanics right that were in Shadows. And I think we were working on, I, I think we were trying to do something. The same the X Wing the Shadows team was trying to do something like an X Wing console game. Um, I don't even we didn't have a design we didn't have a pitch but we wanted to try to do seamless transition from space to low altitude flight. Uh, on an N64, which was just stupid. Like, <laughs> like it was a huge, yeah, it was a huge thing. And you, you knew there'd be some hand-wavy moments. You know, at some point you'd be going through the clouds and there'd be a lot of fog and then mm-hmm. we'd load the world or whatever. But we were trying to do that when news of the prequels came along and we were trying to think, all right, what are some scenes? So we were invited to um, the main house uh, at Skywalker Ranch where, you know, the concept artists were working on stuff. And we weren't able to see the script yet at that time, but that was like somebody... I guess the president of our company at the time had been told about this scene. He's like, well, that sounds like a video game. <laughs> um, and showed us. And we're like, yep, I can see a game there because it was some great sketches of giant jet engines being, you know, pulling this little pod and these people riding them. And it was Ben Hurt, you know, 400 miles an hour um, with, with, you know, space jets, right? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a concept you can wrap your head around it doesn't sound like a star Wars game. Like that's going to be weird. Like a star Wars racing game. It's just, that's going to be weird, but it's going to be a pivotal scene in the movie. It's going to be a big deal. So yeah, we had pretty early access to all that and the script and all those other things to give us context for it. But uh, our focus was immediately just let's just do the heck out of that, which was tricky because they were still making the movie. Right. Um, And the guys at ILM hadn't really got to that part yet. (laughs) <laughs> right? our, game, our game had to be done long before the effect shots did. Like in those days, you'd, for the game to be on shelf in May 25th or whatever, or earlier, a week earlier, the game had to be like, you know, shipped off to Japan, right, in March for manufacturing, early hmm. March, or maybe even earlier. Um, so we were like pencils down, like February early March. And that's when you first started to hear the cool sounds that Ben Burt made. <laughs> oh, like we don't, we don't even get the suburban, you know, pod racing sound. Cause we they hadn't come up with that yet. It was a yeah. big engine. And then at some point in the editing room, you know, he did dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that would have been so cool, but it was too late. So. <laughs> George Lucas is a is sort of famously, you know, he's a car guy. He loves motor racing, which is probably why the oh, why yeah. the pod racing scene is in there. Did he sort of take, I guess, any more of an interest in the development of this game than other games because of that? Do you think? Um, I no, he was super busy. Right? Oh, of course, I mean, yeah, I, that makes yeah. sense. But but um, I was able to sit in with Ben Burt as he was because he was actually editing the movie at this point. He wasn't just sound guy, and that was kind of fun because my kid went to the same school his kid did, and so we kind of we knew each other through kids even though i was always like you know (laughs) fanboy worship but it was fun because he just liked to talk shop um so i did have a lot of behind the scenes and that's what i would i would have one-on-ones with george who'd come in um to talk with ben about this shot or that shot or this you know that scene but you know i'd keep my opinions to myself because that wasn't my place but it was a fun way for me to observe all of that and a lot of yeah a lot of the animatics were all cut together shots from 
cool car and racing movies that um, Lucas, you know, had, had either worked on like the movie um, Grand Prix with mm-hmm. uh, blank James Garner. Um, mm-hmm. George George was like a unit, you know, second unit director or whatever, but he had to invent all these cool shots where the cameras mounted on the car, aimed at the driver. Aimed, I mean, there was a lot of really cool out there filmmaking techniques going on to capture the action of racing that uh, George Lucas had sort of made up in those years. And so it was very passion thing for him and I could tell that was and you could tell because the scene kept getting <laughs> bigger it was like at some point it was like 25 minutes long and yeah I think when they released it in the final movie it was like 13 minutes or something and then of course you saw that stuff come back later um, in the expanded editions and and yeah trying to uh, but it was it was pretty clear that that was a passion project for him and you could see it I mean it's the best part of the movie right um, yeah it didn't need a lot of explaining. It was strong visual action storytelling, which is what um, George Lucas excelled at, honestly. Mm. Had you ever worked on a, like, I know there's sort of, you know, racer like elements, I guess, to some of the previous Star Wars games, like the swoop bike and things like that. But had you ever worked on like a racing game before episode one racer? No, no, that was, that was the, that was, yeah, that was my first and only, and only racing game. I mean, I had, um, I, I think I'd worked on pitching some ideas around, along those lines before, but um, nothing that really had that much, um, didn't have enough legs to it to really go anywhere. So, yeah. So I didn't know much about racing games, so I had to fire some up and play them. And um, there were some great ones that were just come out around that time that were really inspiring, especially for the the type of racing game we were envisioning, which is more you versus the environment at extreme speed than you versus a bunch of other cars. Mm. Um, Beetle Adventure Racing on the N64, I think had just come out. It was fantastic and similar. It was like an adventure game with cars. Yeah. Um, And also, uh, I think it was called Top Gear Overdrive. Um which had nothing to do with the TV show Top Gear, <laughs> but it was a it was a chain of games at the time. Um, can't remember which studio made the Boss Game Studio, I think. Um, just really great graphics. Like they had figured out a way to do reflective puddles on the ground, which you're like, so people do that all the time. But <laughs> in those days, you did that by by carefully cutting a hole in the ground, and then using alpha textures to blur the edges of the holes so it doesn't look like it's cut. And then the sky dome, which we're all familiar with, the sky dome or sky box that sits above the world that has a sky in it, you build a bowl. And you're really just looking through a hole in the floor to the 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 reverse side of the sky dome, which is a bowl below you. It was brilliant. Like, <clears throat> And then you'd figure out a few things to try to reflect in there, which is really just this mountain that you see reflected. There's literally an upside-down version of the mountain underneath the ground plane. It was all this fascinating technical shit yeah. that we were fig- figuring out at the time, but <laughs> you play another racing game like that and be like, oh my God, that's that's how you do that. And so suddenly all the levels uh, we were making were like, okay, we need to make the ice is going to be reflective. We're going to do a lake uh, on the swamp lake, you know, a swamp planet. We're going to do a shiny lake. It doesn't make any sense on the swamp planet, but it's going to be a fully reflective <laughs> lake. <laughs> and... Um, so you started to use those tricks that, that worked. Um, same thing happened in test. Like I wanted to create the big jump moment in the movie at Tatooine where they go over the Canyon. It was a big Canyon that they jump over. Um, it was a big moment in the original cut. I don't think it made 
I don't think it was quite a bit, as big of a moment in the final movie, but um, it was a huge jump and it was crazy to go off a jump at scale speeds of 400 miles an hour. Um, it just felt bananas and the testers loved it. And I think they, one of them suggested maybe finding a couple other areas on the other levels to punch a hole in the ground, to come up with jumps. Um, <laughs> and so we started doing that and then it became like jump city. <laughs> <laughs> And then the the trick with that is we also made a rule that you should be able to race any of those courses backwards. So we had to figure out how those jumps were going to work. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause you know, in the, in the, in the film, obviously we only see the one pod racing track, but you know, in the game, you've got to come up with a whole tournament's worth of them. I mean, how much freedom did you have in sort of creating those locales? Oh, that was total freedom. I mean, I, I like coming up with names, um, and, and stuff like that, especially Star Wars names. So there's kind of a, a skill to it. Most people get it wrong and they come up with names that are too spacey or they have too many consonants in them or too many Zs. And in fact, Shizor is the worst example of a, of a Star <laughs> Wars name ever. And I don't really want to get into how that name came to be, but let's just say that's not very Star Warsy. But what George Lucas had a knack for is looking at a character and then just coming up with a name that sounds like a name that you and I might know somebody, right? Like mm -hmm. Dud, Dud Bolt is one of the pod <laughs> racers names. Yeah. That's fantastic. Like he looks like a guy you'd call Dud Bolt <laughs> and it's not a strange spacey sounding name, right? Yeah. Um, you know, same thing with Han Solo, Luke Skywalker. They're, they're normal names. They, they don't have these weird artificially what I call Star Trekky names. So, so that's fun. So we'd come up with planet names, um, and the joke, the joke at LucasArts, one of many about us, uh, those of us who made Star Wars games, that we always had the lava planet, the ice planet, the snow planet. Like, can't you just have a planet like ours, which has lots of stuff in it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> junkyard planet, like the whole planet's a junkyard. Um, it was no, just, just a simple Just the thing. one topographical feature, thanks. That's, that's all we need. Yeah, it's just a one kind of like, okay, well, well, so we had yeah a planet that has everything. Um, or a, a planet that's all about volcanoes, right? A planet that's all about jungle. And then you just come up with a name that kind of fits that. And we, we'd have well, some of the best concept artists at LucasArts, like um, Peter Chan, who had done a lot of the, all the adventure game concept art, right? Monkey Island, Grim Fandango. Um, he does movies. He does all the big, you know, Harry Potter movies and everything else. But, you know, he, he'd try to come up with a theme or a story that, you know, like, like artists do, you know, like, oh, what's the idea behind this? Oh, the the planet Barunda, maybe it's like, the, you know, the, the the Mayans, you know, or maybe it's more like the Inca, maybe it's a mix of Inca and Tibetan cultures, you know, and they live in the mountains and they have, you know, flags and, and he's like, okay, cool. So he does a whole bunch of research that the player probably never really fully appreciates or sees, but it tries to give the an identity to this place mm -hmm. because a lot of that went into the movie where Tatooine and this whole Ben-Hur arena and all these people and all this stuff wanted to try to give um, some flavor and some, <clears throat> you know, a sense of identity to all these other planets. So we actually did all the work we would normally do for, you know, an Avenger game or anything like that, even though it's just sort of, you know, brief eyewash. Um, you see most of that in the PC, um, version of the game or the Sega version that had the, the FMV sequences that were added later that had just longer introductions and gave you a little bit more sense of what the place was about. 
I've always had a theory that Obi-Wan took the name Ben because he was a big fan of Ben Quadrinaros. <laughs> ben Quadrinaros. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his name makes sense. He's a dude with four engines. Quadrinaros. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's funny you mentioned names and stuff. Like, you, you touched on Dash, Dash Rendar's name before. Yeah. I've always wondered, the, the name Rendar, I have, I've never found confirmation of this, but was that, is that a play on the whole, you know, video game graphics being rendered and him being a video game character like what was the origin there i don't think so i honestly think that one came from uh steve perry the novelist uh entirely i mean i had scribbled a whole bunch of names some of which i thought might be cool some of them i thought would suck <laughs> um i wasn't happy with any of them honestly some and and he came up with that one and i think everybody else kind of nodded and said yeah that makes sense i think it was I don't think it was. I don't think it was an in joke. I think it just sound, it sounded spacey, which honestly is like that's not how you come up with a Star Wars name. <laughs> um, Rendar is like some sort of star system or something. I don't know. It it just. I'm not sure. That'd be a good question for him. Like, what was the inspiration? Yeah. There's a there's a rumor on your. I think I saw this on like your Wikipedia page or something like that. That the the design of Dash Rendar in the game was actually based on you is there any truth to that no not really i think uh what we i mean i posed myself for a couple of shots that we did but um but the the face of dash render it was really hard because when there wasn't one person that we actually had to work from as reference mm. there was a model we hired i think uh our, our storyboard artist paul topolos who's fantastic he storyboarded all everything in the game and, and and originally did the sketch that became the the cover of Shizor's face, which I did the cover, but that was his rendering of Shizor, which try we were we needed to get there before the comic people did because <laughs> the novelist kept describing describing him as reptilian, and I'm just thinking, God, are we making Star Trek or Star Wars? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> so the fastest we could get to a dashing looking yet somewhat sinister looking green skinned guy um, <laughs> without making him look like a lizard. Let's get there fast. So we did that. But same thing with uh, dash render. We had a guy who just did mostly poses to get like the, the right pose for the scene where he's posing on his bikes or things like that. But the face I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about. I didn't think it should look like the model we had. He just looked like, you know, a guy, a mm. kid, right? Yeah. He was in his twenties or something. And so, I think it ended up becoming like this strange amalgamation, like the final shot of the game when he's in the cockpit talking with Lebo about how, mm -hmm. how, how glad he was we were able to get out of that mess, the secret ending, as it were. Um, I think it's kind of a combination of Kevin Costner, Don Johnson, and, <laughs> and some other dude that just <laughs> naturally flowed from my mouse to my D paint screen, which was the, the program we all used at the time. Um, to draw those cinematics with um, and, and maybe a hint to the original model guy who was in there. I was just trying to age that guy up a little bit, lighten his hair, do some stuff. And I look at it now and it's like, is that Kip Costner or is that Don Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, one of the other uh, things about that design that, that has sort of come in for, you know, people have made jokes about over the years is the, um, the, the, fam pads. the famous shoulder pads, but there was a there yeah. was a practical reason for that, right? Yeah, there was actually a very practical reason for that. So, 
originally he was just, you know, the novelist described him again as a dashing, you know, tall guy with long red hair, flowing cape, shiny weapons, shiny clothes, shiny spaceship. I think it was a, it was a gloss black ship originally. And again, none of this stuff sounded right for the lived in banged up, you know, universe. It would would have fit perfectly in the prequels now that I think about it. Um, But it didn't really fit with my understanding of what Star Wars was. So I kind of, you know, kept pushing back against that stuff. Mm-hmm. Plus we couldn't do long hair. Like these games are rendered, you could render 2,500 or 3,000 polygons per frame. Mm-hmm. So that was to, that was to enable a frame rate of 30 frames per second. So for perspective, a typical Forza car right today is millions of <laughs> polygons. <right? laughs> so like, you know, the, it was just so archaic that you knew you were going to have a boxy angular character. Um, uh, especially if you're going to have a complex, a lot of complex stuff going on uh, around curvy character like Mario, that takes so much of the com- computing power. There's not much left for the world. And Mario is a simple world, mm-hmm. beautiful, very beautifully designed, which is another lesson, you know, design a game and a visual style that fit the hardware you're building it for. We were just trying to get as close to whatever realism we could achieve and bang it into hard corners. It was really it was really raw stuff. That's why you see this strange expression on his face, which is a mirrored texture of one half. Nobody has a mirrored face, but Dash <laughs> Rendar does. Uh, you know, the, 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 the shoulder boxes as they are were to hide the fact that we didn't have a skinned character or a character whose, whose skin seamlessly blended and bent. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few games did. They, they had basically your, each, each limb is a capsule with a rounded edge that just kind of, bleeds into each other and you try to make them look like the same color. So you don't see the actual seams, mm-hmm. um, but shoulders are the hardest one because that's the, the most articulated joint we have. And you would see that ball and joint thing. You'd see that. So you had to have a big thing to cover that up. And so there was lots of different variants where it's all shiny metal. It's like, that's look Star Wars. Stop it. <laughs> Let's go back and do. So they became leather pads. And um, I, so I think the, Again, it's like that character and how he looks is an amalgamation of, of you know, functionality and need of the system, uh, the opinions of three different parties, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and a general idea that you always want to have a signature color that you can remember him by. So he's kind of blue and tan. That's kind of his signature kind of color scheme. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's just certain things that all go into that that end up with a character that, you know, is still, you know, he's kind of he's kind of the blue milk <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars characters, you know. But I understand though that because that's the first extra out, outside of the movies experience um, that a lot of players had interactive, you know, young kids. It's like that character means a lot more to them, I think. Um, so it, it feels it feels mean to be like, you know. <laughs> dissing on him and stuff he did serve a purpose and um since we're talking about the guy i think i got uh, <laughs> the old action figure yeah <laughs> just the over there. that's legit yeah it's funny i was just digging through the garage the other day and found mine as well i have uh I've got, yeah i've got the the um the the red guard guys that we came up with i guess where she's yeah. always guards um uh, I designed that one. I didn't get royalties for any of that stuff. I didn't get any. Pay- I didn't get any toy payment. <laughs> the outright, the outrider spaceship. That was another one that um, 
Yeah. That was mostly Doug, Doug Chang, uh, who is a, you know, amazing concept artist behind all the prequel stuff. But, you know, I, again, I was, the, the idea at the time was he was going to have this black, shiny, um, super aerodynamic spaceship is what the, how the novelist described it. I'm like, Oh God, we can't do that. You know, it's not going to work in the video game. We can't do shiny. We can't do reflective, you know, there's a million reasons why we can't do that. And plus, um, you know, it seems like these guys, these rough and tough space pirates always get their ships from Corellia because they're the best at making these freighters, I guess. I mean, with whatever fiction we've given ourselves. So it should be a cousin of the millennium Falcon without being a, a copy. Um, so it should still be a, you know, a saucer-based ship. It should still have a couple of forks in it for loading. But I also love the B-Wing. So the way I describe it to, and I did a couple of little sketches and sent them to Doug. And I said, I, I think of it as a B-Wing mated with a Millennium Falcon. And um, and he's like, oh, okay. You know, and he goes off and, and comes back with some drawing. He came back with one sketch. It was like, it was perfect. Like out of the gate, he only needed to do one sketch. Wow. And then I and then I went and built a very high-res model that I, I knew we'd never be able to use in the game just to just to visualize it, did a render of it. Um, and we're like, yes, that feels right. It feels like it belongs in Star Wars. And you end up seeing it in the special edition version of Star Wars when they arrive at Mos Eisley. It's flying um, out of the city as you know they roll up. Yeah. I didn't get credit for that. But... <laughs> <laughs> It must have felt good, though, to see one of your 3D I mean, model in Star Wars in, you know, the original film, I guess. Well, and yeah, it was all kind of about the, the burgeoning cooperation between ILM and, and LucasArts at the time. At the time, we were all put under one company, um, Lucas Digital or something, and, you know, that we were asked to try to collaborate more, which is just it's tough. Those guys make movies, we make games. Mm. Um, but But we did do, we did have some moments of really close collaboration and that was one of them they're like hey we need some ships to populate the sky we hear you guys have an amazing ship library from all these games you've made what do you got and so we sent them uh a few of the we had a better version of the tidarium shuttle than they did actually um and we sent them uh the outrider and they chucked that in the scene so that was cool um mm. and we take models from them right and then bang them into game vehicles if we could but it was um and on racer there's lots of collaboration because mm. um, they were trying to figure out the physics of how these things would actually work and um we were trying to figure that out way ahead of them so the way we tackled some of those things actually informed how they approached them in the movie uh, i can give you an example which is um when a when a pod racer turns the the pod doesn't swing out wide it leans into the turn hmm. um that seems counterintuitive because if you know if you got a ball on the end of a stick and you're swinging the stick around that ball's going to go flying but these had to have some sort of aerodynamic control and surfaces so we started opening flaps and things like that to explain how that could happen and um, they hadn't really thought about that. And as soon as they saw that in the game, every pod racer had like aerodynamic <laughs> flaps opening up, which is cool because it gave a really, that's how airplanes work and these don't have wings. So they, they mm. decided to put all those control surfaces on the engines themselves. And maybe they would have gotten there anyway, but we tackled it first. Um, and the, when John Knoll, not to be confused with John Knowles, who's <laughs> yep. me, yep. he was the visual effects supervisor at ILM, when he saw how we, you know, when you made a hard turn, the pod actually leaned into the turn before the engines did. That, like, was to him, like, um, awesome. And, that, and it was great to get that feedback from him because it, it's it, we weren't sure it made sense. It felt right in the game, 
but he's like, oh, absolutely. You know, the, the pod is driving the engines. It's not the engines throwing the pod around. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was, it was just cool to see that. And we'd bring them a version of the game that was being built and leave it for them to play. And they'd pound away on it and try to get a sense. And then they could do so much more, obviously, with secondary animations and bendy cables. Oh, <clears throat> that was another thing. The bendy cables was, uh, that took a lot of, trickery to get that to work on a N64 but a lot of that came from the cables from the uh, Walker battle. Oh wow. Yeah. So which was never going to happen until the final hour. I like we almost shipped a game where you would pummel the Walker a thousand times with laser bolts before it went down without ever wrapping it up with a cable. Sorry, what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was always the intent but it was like oh we can't do bendy cables man you know sorry like my, my my programming team they're awesome and they're like i i can't wrap my head around how we're going to do that and i'd go in and i'd, I'd do kind of a passive aggressive you know, thing. Like, if only we had bendy cables you know, maybe there's a way we can do it by drawing a line and just sort of extruding it and, and faking and bending like i'm not talking about real bending i was trying to like get designers do this all the time they try to they pitch an idea that's really hard um, and the engineers think of the hardest possible solution for it. And then the designer says, well, what if you only did like a baby step and you know, what's going to happen. They're going to do it and they're going to realize that's not good enough. And they're going to do it yep. and do it and do it and make it better. But you have to plan for that. You've got to schedule that. But Eric Johnston went home and thought about that and came in on a weekend and called me into his office and said, uh, which is right next to mine. And said, John, you got to see this. And I saw a snowspeeder going around a walker with a, with a, you know, a black line shooting out of it mm-hmm. and kind of wrapping itself around its legs. I'm like, how did you do that? He said, well, I took that silly idea you had and I actually thought about it and did the math <laughs> for it. And <laughs> there we are. So it's, it's using lines instead of actual curves and, and stuff you could do now. You just couldn't do back then. Everything was like super simple, but that allowed him to make a much more, detailed model for the bendy cables which was which was really important to sell the the pod racers you couldn't just have them stuck by a a static line Mm. they had to bend and fly and he was inspired by a lot of how those moved when he would um run his dogs by running i mean he was on a rollerblades and he had two big labs connected with a rope and he would be Ben hurrying around the streets of San Francisco <laughs> leaning in and he realized it's not the dogs making the right turn. It's him like starting to turn that way with they <laughs> go. That's what gave him the idea that the pod leads the engines rather than the engines lead the pod. Wow. So, That's great. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool stuff. <laughs> What was it? What was it like to be working on, you know, an episode one game like Racer at at a time when, you know, especially like closer to the release of the film, you know, you'd leave work and presumably just be surrounded by episode one hype and merch everywhere. I mean, episode one was everywhere at the time, right? Yeah. Uh, well, there was a lot of secrecy for the entire year and a half. Well, I guess when you were working on it, yeah. Yeah. Well, we were making it. Um, yeah, we knew the hype. We also knew that um, we were starting to see, you know, like the whole film come together and it was hard to, you, you know how it turned out, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, it was hard to go through all that just knowing that, you know, oh, you know, I, there's, 
they don't know this, but there's going to be a backlash coming and it's going to make a shit ton of money and it's going to be really cool and, 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 and great for lots of reasons, but it was just missing, you know, some basic solid storytelling awesomeness that was in the original trilogy that was pretty clear to see um, throughout development of it. And so it was kind of a weird place to be in. Like, you knew there'd be lines around the block. People saw the Darth Maul shot and saw some clips of the lightsaber and the Padres Mail. I mean, people are stoked. Mm. Um, so that was a weird time. Like we all kind of felt like the, the dread and I, and I, it's hard. It's a hard thing to describe, honestly, because it, it's, um, especially when you work with a lot of people who actually worked on the film mm. and, and, and that's, when you go to a screening, for example, like we go to dailies, we would be invited to sit in with George Lucas and the people from ILM and watch dailies of all these effect shots and things like that. And you get to know a lot of these people. And, and, um, but yeah, when you see the final whole thing come together and there's just a piece missing that, you know, was it because I'm old now and I don't, I just don't have the imagination ahead as a kid where all this stuff was awesome. Or is it really, <laughs> you know, it was hard to wrap your head around the problem. Like, am I really such a geek that I, you know, Star Wars movies, the original trilogy is amazing, you know, even though they're not <laughs> they're actually amazing. <laughs> you know? um, am I still stuck in my eight year old brain or would, if I had only seen this as a, you know, or someone who's much older, would I have the same, it's hard to understand. So mm. and I know kids who grew up with the prequels love them. So mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting because I guess I always assumed, naively, I guess, that, you know, well, I'm sure everyone working on this thought it was amazing and, and was surprised by the backlash or, or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, so it sounds like obviously there were, you know, was there, were there, was there sort of a general sense among the people who, who weren't George Lucas, obviously, that there was something missing? Yeah, yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. And that was, that was apparent sort of in the, in the big, um, the company screening where you're all invited to watch it together, the final cut for that. And, and, you know, the, the moments that make you go, you know, at home on the DVD are magnified in a theater, you know, even of people who worked on it. And yeah, you, you kind of knew that was a thing, um, which is interesting because in a lot of ways, the follow-up film was, was almost goofier in some ways, but it was much more of a crowd crowd pleaser. So there was a lot more, um, I guess fun to be had or feeling that that attack of the clones was actually a bit more of a, of a fun ride, I guess. Um, mm. um, and then, you know, I, and I wasn't there for the release of the, the final movie, but I was, um, I was in Australia on set during the final duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan. Wow. We were going to do the game of the film and we needed to be there to soak it all in. And that was all pretty amazing. And I started to sort of feel some of those Star Wars tingles, um, you know, that, that I guess this is all making sense and this is really cool, but, but yeah, there was, there was just something you couldn't put your finger on in episode one that, and yeah, we did get a backlash. It wasn't just from the movie, but we made so many, there was like six games, right. Mm. Tied to that whole series and that whole time frame. It was just a shotgun approach and probably wasn't a, a wise thing to do in retrospect, just do a couple of great games and, and let it be. But making a game, of a movie to come out with release the movie, you know, you're, you're in an uphill battle. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's never going to be as good as, as it could be if it wasn't, um, you know, it's, it's never going to get all the magic that was in the film. Cause that stuff comes later. 
um, there's going to be compromises. And of course the date can't move. So, you know, you're in a lot of games, the date can't move, but that the date comes first, right? Mm-hmm. Before you write everything, everything you can think of has to fit between the end date and now. Um, so yeah, there's a reason why movie games are, are, you know, given a bad rap. They, they kind of burn it. <laughs> um, you, um, you mentioned uh, T- Attack of the Clones, and you, you obviously made a game for that as as well. Uh, you finally got to do your Bounty Hunter game um, yeah. with with Django Fett instead of Boba Fett. <laughs> that that's an interesting game to look back at now because first off, it's a it's a it's a great game, and I feel like maybe this is just because I wasn't paying a lot of attention to video games at the time, but I feel like it's kind of under underrated or underappreciated compared to like oh. Episode One Racer or Shadows. I think it had. Uh... It had some fundamental flaws, uh, you know, like any of those games. Uh, I think Racer probably had the fewest flaws of those three because of its focus. Um, mm. But the, yeah, the story in it was was a lot of fun to come up with. Um, that was that was one of the things that kept it interesting. Doing so many Star Wars games for you know fifteen year, fourteen years that I was doing it is that it's always a brand new thing, and this was a chance for me to go back and I guess kind of do what we wanted to do with the shadows thing. Just focus on the FET, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, yeah, it's Django Fett and, you know, gosh, we just found out he's got a clone kid named Boba. So all those legends of Boba Fett are pretty much, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> that's where, when you asked me earlier, you know, does George Lucas get involved? Um, this was actually one of the funnest um, interactions I'd had with him because, you know, I knew, like he tried to kill his character <laughs> over and over again. He's like, I don't get it. Why do you people keep bringing him back? You, you know, in your comics and in your games. And it's like, he's dead. He served his purpose. He was a bad guy. Bad guy died. <laughs> um, but I think he understood like the, I, the, how iconic that character is and, and the kind of mystery behind him and all that stuff. And, and um, so when I suggested this original story that explains how he became the template for the clone army, which is this whole, premise right uh, mm-hmm. of the game and, and yeah. honestly the the film um without having to tell the story of the film which i didn't want to ever do again mm-hmm. um it was it was clear that we would need some buy-off from them and the way that would typically work with uh with george lucas is you would have a, a list of yes or no questions you would have if you're not in a daily conversation with them um and those yes or no questions you'd send facts um or inner office mail inner office mail envelope but if you just write gwl it will go to him and you want to be very careful that you know (laughs) nothing you send you you never send something there unless you know it's something that is needed to be sent there but i was told to do that so i did um and it was cool because i saw in red pen you know yes no yes no yes no um all these questions i had like you know uh, what if Django was motivated by revenge? If, you know, when he would like, when he was a kid, something bad happened, and mm-hmm. George, and he would, he didn't just write no. He wrote in parentheses, "Keep it all about the money." Mm-hmm. Um, that's so cool. Like, mm. you know, that that's a reminder to keep it focused. You don't mm. try to tell too many stories. Or when I asked him, you know, why he would, can I answer the question why he would want to um, not modify the first clone and have him as a son? And, you know, in a, in a word, he said, in a word, it's legacy. Um, and, and that was cool. And then I'd had a further in-person conversations with him about that. Um, cause he had been talking about a live action show at the time that featured the world of the bounty hunters and all this stuff. So Mandalorian didn't just come out of thin air. This, this has all been gestating 
either in you know, Lucas's mind or John Favreau's mind or Disney's mind or whoever, you know, it's been going on for a long time, but he always knew that that was um, subject matter. That was, was just great material for, you know, prime time, you know, adult audience, mm. uh, CD underbelly of star Wars. Like that's a rich world that could be fun to play around in, um, in little stories on their own. So um, that was cool. And <clears throat> yeah, it was great to be able to, in a lot of those questions I asked were, can I sort of reattribute the, uh, the now defunct Boba legends of Mandalorian, mm-hmm. what it is to be a Mandalorian or how the slave one came to be and just apply that, you know, remap them to Django. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer was yes. So I did. So in a lot of, t- a lot of ways um, that was really gratifying because I got to save some of the cool mysteries and myths of Boba Fett that were no longer true and just kind of pass them down the line Mm. or, you know, to his father or whatever. And I think the Mandalorian show is doing the same thing. They don't get too much into the details because backstory is kind of stupid, but (laughs) honestly, too much backstory. There's a lot of that in games. It just drives me crazy. Just focus on what you need to know Mm. for now. You don't often hear them in the Mandalorian talking about the old days and the, the problems they had. There's just mm. like, whoa, they sound like a bad outfit. <laughs> you know, they sound <laughs> yeah. they sound pretty tough, and they say they have their own sort of guild or not their guild, but their code, right? You know, yeah, way. that's cool. Yeah. You don't have to explain it. It's funny, like you mentioned George talking about legacy, like you know, J- Django Fett, you know, wanting wanting to have a legacy. It's funny because, like, in, as you say, like in Mandalorian, that's a big focus as well. And in Mandalorian, a big influence there seems to be, um, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub, the the comics. And oh yeah, movies. Yeah. Do you know if that was a touch point for George are. as well? Yeah, I, I I recall him bringing that up uh, as a as a uh, as a um, example, um, uh, and not just that, but other, you know. Uh, some Kurosawa movies at the time, but um, yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub for people who don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a Ronin, a samurai has been set loose or fired or, you know, he's got a death sentence on his head and mm-hmm. he's got a two or three year old kid because they killed uh, the kid's mother or as a baby. And he's, and he's basically got to be a badass with a kid on his shoulder all the time. And then the <laughs> two of them form a bond and a lot of the Django Boba, it was kind of fun in the movie to have that set of get him dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of like, how do you raise a kid to be a killer? Like there's gotta be, you know, some, you know, and, and so those were the interesting conversations with George is, you know, he doesn't see himself as a villain. Um, you know, he doesn't, he's just a, he's just a guy who's got a job to do. And that job happens to be hunt people down for money. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's all meaningless unless he could pass it on. So it's the whole Batman thing. It's, you know, the movies, you know, now, now you literally have Batman passing on, you know, the, the role of Batman to somebody else. And um, yeah, I, I think it all makes sense. It's, it's as old as, you know, old storytelling tricks, but uh, yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub was definitely a, I'm sure a, a, a wink and a nod inspiration. That would be an interesting story to tell how Jango and Boba, you know, came to be as a team, I guess. Yeah. So when you, when you left LucasArts, I mean, I know that wasn't your choice, but at, I mean, yeah. at the time you'd been there for a long time, obviously was part of you ready to move on or could you have just gone on making Star Wars games forever? Well, I've asked myself that question many times because yeah, they were, we were all part of a big layoff that was not a pleasant time for a lot of us, especially when it came as a surprise and you know, I'd been there 14 years, which was unheard of in games, you know, people, 
people generally bounce around after every couple of years. So that was my first real job or second real job in games. And I was there for 14 years and I had come from artist animator to lead artist to project leader, you know, all, all this, this, and then I'm like, it's gone. And so that, that hurt um, because I was so close to all of it and a lot of the people I worked with, but at the same time, yeah, I had, I had wrestled with that a few times. I mean, Bounty Hunter wasn't supposed to happen. We were going to do an original game, codenamed Sawyer at the time, mm-hmm. which was a, a action adventure that's more inspired by the Goonies and Explorers and, and those kinds of films that make you feel like a kid again. Mm-hmm. Um, before they said, we need you to do another Star Wars game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it sounds know. like it would have been more of a, I guess, tapping into the whole 80s revival thing that was t- kind of everywhere. Well, it wasn't, though. I would think at that at was the time, the, it wasn't, yeah. but yeah. It is now like yeah. stranger, stranger things is, is like those guys have, they have the same wires in their brain, right? We all mm-hmm. grew up watching those movies. remember, but yeah. So this would have been about 20 years after the early eighties. Right. So early, early two thousands, 2001 or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game was set in 1981 and it was a bunch of 12 year old kids, you know, saving the world from aliens or something. I mean, it was, it was, it was that. Um, and so I really wanted to do something like that, but it was pretty clear that we were not on a path for that. It was, we had become a studio that just, you know, could only imagine doing star Wars and Indiana Jones stuff. So part of me didn't want to do that anymore, even though there was still, I'm sure a good star Wars game in there somewhere. I mean, we were going to do the Darth Vader game Mm. and it became the episode three game, you know, that because, um, a long story <laughs> but, <laughs> you know uh the darth vader kicks ass game is not a movie that there's not a game that that fit george lucas's idea of what darth vader was he was a weakling who made a mistake and that's that's why we have darth vader it's not because he's a celebrated badass and you can make that game but you can't tie it to my movie because that's not what my movie's about i'm telling a tragedy so anyway right. um yeah. that made sense and it's like all right well <laughs> plan b Play the movie game. <laughs> what really happened on the way to Mustafar? Um, you know, it's it's a, you know sad, sadly, just a little lack of imagination there. But that's what you got to do when you got to bang out a game in a year that is, you know, going to look like the movie or be tied to the movie. But um, yeah, I I think we did want to do a, a an open world proper bounty hunter game featuring Boba Fett. I think that was the natural thing that. Um, I wanted to work on Ian Millam, who was my art director on that. He now works on the Mandalorian show. That's awesome. Whoa. Um, we both wanted to kind of do it right this time, um, you know, and correct all the mistakes we did wrong. Just set it in one place and tell a story there. Don't try to do the galaxy hopping thing that we've always done that got us in trouble. That was part of the problem with Bounty Hunters. Just too many, too much stuff, too much scope, you know, cut, 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 pare down, build out the stuff mm. that you want um we thought so we thought we'd do something like that um and i think i would be, i would have been working on a design and it also involved a side mission where you get to hunt down dash rendar that was that oh was wow gonna, that was going to be one of my requirements and i wasn't sure <laughs> yeah that feels kind of personal for you yeah well it was like you know i then i had torn feelings about it because it's like man i don't you know i don't want you to take joy in killing him but you know, <laughs> maybe you go out there to do it and you're left with a choice and the choice, you know, could, you know, could lead to something. I don't know, but we definitely wanted to have a, you know, he's the kind of guy that Boba Fett would be sent after. 
just like yeah. Han Solo. So let's use him in that regard. And then if we need to, we can, you know, make him expendable. Which I got to tell you that um, when I saw one of those early trailers for the Mandalorian and you just get that flash of Bill Burr's character with the over the shoulder blaster and the ginger beard, I thought, Dash Rendar's coming back. I mean, the, <laughs> the years have not been kind to his hair, but but he's back. And I, I got insanely excited about the prospect of seeing Dash live on screen. Yeah. Um, did, did that occur to you when you saw that character? I I didn't. I, I knew they'd never yeah. they'd never go dig into the bag. Well, it's funny though because they are they are actually pulling inspiration from some of the weird comics at the time too with the rabbit people, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and they actually turned out pretty cool. Or is that in the Han Solo movie? Am I crossing? My crossing wires. I think I'm crossing wires. And the Han Solo movie, by the way, I absolutely love that. I don't know why anybody gave that a bad rap. That's everything I wanted from a Han Solo movie, and nothing mm. more. A fun romp, yeah, with the Great. wook, the wook and the crook, which is how <laughs> Brian Brian Daly used to describe them. I have an autographed copy of that trilogy um, from him, uh, from the days that we had kicked around Han Solo ideas, and and he just was tickled by the fact that people still remember these books. Like he had. He just, you know, had no idea they were that, you know, important. But yeah, he said, uh, yeah, the Wook and the Crook, and I, I just thought they, he would have loved that movie. It's exactly kind of the, you know, they're they're off to make a bunch of money doing some some shenanigans, and then he ends up giving it all away to 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 help somebody, which is kind of Han Solo. He's a he's just a a big soft-hearted tough guy, right? That's exactly yeah. how that movie should have played out. But uh, yeah, I think the Mandalorian. Uh, definitely tugs on the nostalgia strings. It is the most enjoyable Star Wars experience I think I've had since seeing Empire Strikes Back. Wow. It is interesting that one of your team has gone on to work on that because yeah. when you when you read about the, the way they've designed that um, video um, equipment so that yeah, you, know, you feel like that. you're the in volume. the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's integral to that sort of uh, that yeah. VR or that sort of uh, that in, um, the, the interactive previs portion of it. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the, the word is, but um, yeah, and he's learning a lot and it's amazing too. And it's a really cool crew and they're, they're kind of pushing the envelope of you know, what can be done on a stage, which is just kind of amazing, mm-hmm. but also just doing good old fashioned, simple storytelling. Right. Um, yeah. Which, you know, is, is, it's kind of nice to, to just have that all again. And you care about these faceless characters, you know, that <laughs> like you did for C3PO and R2. Like, you know, you, you care about the I, IG 11 or whatever his name is. It's like, it's never a character I thought I'd care about. I always liked him as a cool toy. And we featured yeah. him in the game prominently because he's, you know, he seemed like a scary badass. And, um, and to, to see him open up a can of whip ass like that in the, in that show, that was awesome. Like, mm-hmm we were trying to solve those problems in a game a long time ago and he moved very clunky and <laughs> didn't, but he was very scary. It was like the scariest boss that I think I had ever um, worked on yeah. uh, in, in a game. Cause he was always there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No matter where you went, he would figure a way to path right in front of you and just say, and start blasting you and when you see him do that in the in the show you realize why he's feared which is really cool it's like yeah. all the star wars toys this is the one that seemed to be the one everybody feared the most yeah yeah the bounty hunters. Mm-hmm. do you see a lot of that you know 
that LucasArts influence on the on the newer you know films and television. You know, I mean, you mentioned Solo, and and like for me, like in the train sequence in Solo, that instantly sort of gave me flashbacks to you know the train sequence in Shadows of the Empire, or in uh, the second episode of The Mandalorian when Boba Fett's climbing up the the sand crawler and Jawas like sticking their heads out and throwing things at him or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of reminded me of the sand crawler sequence in Super Star Wars, and even Rogue One. The whole con- the whole conceit of you know of setting a film about stealing the Death Star plans in between two of the existing yeah, chapters of the we've story. Done, we've done that a few times. I think yeah. Dark Forces <laughs> and X-Wing both had their own flavors of that story. Yeah. Um, so like, do you see a lot of that stuff when you're, when you're watching the newer films? Well, I certainly see it, but I, I don't see that like, there was a direct line to it. I think these are all things that the filmmakers now, or we as game makers then were like, wow, there's an interesting story there that nobody's really told. You know, mm. many, many Bothans died that sounds like a really bad day. You know, somebody should, (laughs) somebody should like go in and what do they mean? So again, a part of that is the, what really happened on the way to the, you know, sand crawler. (laughs) Um, You want to fill in the gaps uh, of things that you you found were interesting. So I think, I think, um, and I know that for John Knoll, again, ILM, um, (laughs) that was a passion project of his, the Rogue One. Um, as the producer of that film, I mean, I, a lot of that was was just like a story he wanted to tell, and mm. and they made a great flick out of that. That was a yeah. that was a great movie. And the last five minutes of that are the Darth Vader game that you always wanted to make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was uh, we were well, and we had and I had had those discussions with him while we were in Australia because we didn't want to do the game of the movie. We wanted to do the Vader goes out and hunts down all the Jedi um, game. Like yeah. you are the ultimate villain game. It's something everyone on the team got. They, they got it. Like you are bad. You know, you are mean, bad, and you are also really awesome to play. Um, it's a weird place to be in, you know, as a, as a game character to basically go out and kill a bunch of good, noble people. And, and so I, I understand that George struggled with that, but his main problem was it can't, that's not what my movie's about. So it has, can have nothing to do with my movie. And of course, it's my responsibility to make the game that comes out with the movie and mm. makes everybody, you know, a lot of money and justifies our reason for being there and pays all of our bills. So, okay. Um, so we tried to work that in, uh, Ian was part of that too. Ian Mellum uh, tried to, tried to, you know, ah, okay, we'll, we'll do some of the movie and then we'll do some of the thing after the movie. And at some point I think George, I think George literally said, um, what part of our last conversation did you not understand? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. So, and it was a weird place to be in because everybody was so excited. Like everybody on the team, marketing, um, the president of LucasArts at the time, they were all stoked about the ultimate Vader villain badass. It's sexy. I get it. It's an easy sell, you know, and it inspires the team. And when you have a team that's inspired, they do amazing stuff. So, but the worst part was the dark cloud of uncertainty. Like, will we be able to make this game or not? Um, mm. Was hanging over us for a long time. And it wasn't until that day where we had that clarity. Where it's like, no, you absolutely cannot make that game and have it have tie into this movie. We were like, all right, fine. We'll do the, you know, the obligatory what really happened on the way to, from the <laughs> uh, game with Obi-Wan and Anakin. But we did a couple of things in there that's, found their way into the movie because we were we were exploring all these villainous evil dark things and we wanted the player to feel bad so we were actually going to have a scene where he invades the jedi temple and then you see all the children light up with excitement when they see him and then he'd fire up the lightsaber and then we would you know that would be the 
end of that scene because we don't want you, of course, playing a game where you're slaughtering innocents. But mm-hmm. um, we were going to do that scene, and we were like, "Oh man, that's that's nasty. That's scary. I love it." And the movie had nothing like that. It was just a security camera footage of Anakin beating on some Luke Skywalker age people. It's like that doesn't really. Um, and we were allowed to provide feedback at some screenings. Like you know, I'm not feeling like he really stepped over that line and did mm-hmm. a bad, bad thing. You know, for example, in the game, we were going to do X. And I know they had those conversations. I don't know if we directly inspired the scene, but there was a scene just like that in the movie. Yeah. That was not there mm-hmm. in the in any of the um, early cuts. Um, and again, it probably just could have been, that's your natural line of thinking. What is the worst thing that could happen, you know, to this person who's gotten evil, uh, you know, killing you know a bunch of little students that would be horrible horrible Mm. thing um (laughs) that he's beyond saving at that point so yeah so that was interesting so i i don't know if it was a direct result but i think we made it a little bit better we also had a big problem with the vader reveal scene um which was a we were it was hard not to laugh the first time you saw it because he was coming up from the table and his his arms were pinned like this like Han Solo was in the carbon freeze, you know, uh-huh. right? That, but it looked so comical, like, you know, Vader's, you know, the spooky Vader helmet. You're like, oh my God, this is the birth of Darth Vader. And then you see like these little arms. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, he should be out here. Like, you know, when Han Solo was strapped to the torture table or he'd yeah. be, you know, uh, just so they ended up digitally moving his arms out to make that less goofy based on some feedback that a bunch of game geeks had. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because, because we said it and then higher up people who are with us were like, yeah, I kind of agree with you. And then they said it. And yeah, so it was kind of interesting to see those things happen, but, um, but yeah. that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much cross contamination there was, but yeah, going back to seeing, I think when people are telling star Wars stories now, in any way um they're they're all still inspired by those same moments it's a great as much as i tease you know the pre the prequels and the funkiness in them it's an amazing universe that came from lucas's mind that i was very fortunate to be able to play in as a kid with toys and then later as a young adult in my new career um it's pretty miraculous actually yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to uh, to talk to us. That oh, was great. It was great fun. Um, thanks yeah. for having me. And and uh, thank you as well for all the work you've done and all those projects over the years that, that really gave, well, me and Rowan so much entertainment and, and everyone else. You know, I, I still have so many fond memories of those games that you were part of creating. I'm glad. But the Sandcrawler remember... was not mine. <laughs> My level, so yeah. you, you can't you can't get angry with me about that one. Uh, I remember um, when I lived in in Glasgow in the nineties. Uh, X, you know, we we played X Wing um, via LAN, so uh, mm-hmm. we had friends come over to our apartment, and there were about six of us, and we all lugged those those big tube monitors mm-hmm. around, and we connected them all together, and that was one of my first experiences in multiplayer gaming. And it was amazing, you know, taking to the skies as an X-Wing squadron together. Yeah. So yeah, or, thank you. Or flying the tin can TIE fighter and hoping you don't get hit because yeah. that was scary. <laughs> yeah, wonderful stuff. No, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed them. We had a lot of fun making them um, mm. for the most part. Yeah. <laughs>
So there you go. Thanks again to uh, John Knowles for coming on the show and uh, and talking all things uh, LucasArts and, and Lucasfilm and so on and so forth. Oh, that chat alone has just tripled the value personally of my uh, Dash Render action figure, <laughs> I think. Absolutely. Uh, you know, to, to me, the sentimental value. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was great to talk to John about his first uh, racing game, Episode 1 Racer, because, uh, you know, now the student has become the master. Um, you know, <laughs> so you can check out Forza Horizon 4, uh, developed by Playground Games in the UK. Uh, he's been working pretty closely with them since their first Forza Horizon game uh, that they released back in 2012 in his role at Turn 10 Studios in Redmond. It, it kind of sounds like a Star Wars game, doesn't it? Four. Forza Horizon, <laughs> if you're saying it in some kind of European accent. If yeah. you squint a little bit, or you, yeah, if you say it with an accent, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, so that's Forza Horizon 4. That's on Xbox and Windows 10. Uh, also available on Xbox Game Pass. And if you want to follow John for, for more just sort of nuggets of, uh, of wisdom and, and info like he was dropping today, he's at John K 1969 on Twitter. Baz, I mean, fair to say you're a, you're a LucasArts fan going way back, right? Yeah. These games. You must have spent a lot of time <laughs> on these babies. So much time, and and I think I've I've played all of them, and and one of the things that I was so impressed about was to hear John talk about how closely they looked at the West End Games source books when they were making things like X Wing, Tie Fighter, and uh, Alliance, mm. because you know it really shows through. You know they use the same sort of ships that that uh, those books were using, and they use the you know the the same symbols as he said, and a lot of those things came uh, around the same time as the Timothy Zahn revival as well with his heirs of the empire novels so it all really pointed towards this really internally consistent universe that i just loved living in and Mm. yeah the lucasarts games of the time were just one arm of that amazing universe so yeah really uh really great times and to be a star wars fan in the 90s yeah we're gonna i guess relive some of those times this month uh when episode one racer is re-released on uh playstation 4 and nintendo switch Anyway, that's that's us for this week. Were you a big LucasArts gamer as a kid, or like when when did you when did you get into LucasArts, guys? Let us know. Hit us up at uh, where forcematerial at gmail uh, You can also drop us a line at uh, we're at forcematerial on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We tend tend to spend the most time on Twitter, so that's probably the easiest way to find us. But um, you can find us at any of those places. If you enjoy what you heard this week, you can also drop us a review on any of your podcast platforms of choice five-star review never goes astray but hey you know i'm not i'm not telling you how to live your life um (laughs) i'm rowan williams i'm baz McAllister, and you've just taken your first step into a larger world